0: So today we're going to talk about a pretty challenging topic for a lot of people. We're going to talk about eating disorders.
1: We'll start by talking about the different types of eating disorders. So we'll focus on anorexia and bulimia and then discuss how they typically present and are diagnosed.
0: And then we'll go into the most evidence-based treatments for eating disorders and how you can help a friend or loved one who may be struggling with an eating disorder. As a teenager and young adult, I personally knew many women who struggled with disordered eating. And now as a general pediatrician, I have to be honest, I'm always surprised by the number of teens I see in my office with with disordered eating or an eating disorder.
1: Yeah. You know, a hundred years ago when I was in training, this was like a new thing. Um, the, the, that we had and that children were occasionally admitted to the hospital for. But I'm getting, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But there is an increasing appreciation of eating disorders. Definitely. So let's talk about some of the signs and symptoms that really make you concerned that a teen might have an eating disorder.
0: Yeah, so I would say most of the time the concern is brought up by a parent or guardian. They may have noticed their, their loved ones skipping meals. Or engaging in dangerous diets, um, or kind of picking at their food and moving it around their plate, but not actually consuming much of it. They might have heard their child vomiting or purging after meals, or noticed a significant weight loss and are bringing them in for that. Or like a intense preoccupation with their weight. They're they're stepping on the scale multiple times a day, or spending a lot of time in front of a mirror. And um, sometimes, though, I am the one who notices a significant drop in their weight from their last visit, and that will prompt me to ask a little bit more about dietary habits, you know, self-image or concern for weight.
1: So what's the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder? Because they sound kind of similar, right?
0: <laughs> they do sound very similar. And it, it can be tricky to distinguish one from the other, and and disordered eating can definitely evolve into an eating disorder. So, disordered eating is when someone engages in dangerous food or body behaviors, often with the goal of weight loss. So, many of us um, may have done something like this at, at one point. I know in high school, like I participated in this, like, or I did this Master Cleanse, where you like only drink lemon, you know, lemon juice and maple syrup or something <laughs> like that. Um, so, like, think about like fad diets. Definitely, teenagers are at risk for trying these things. Um, you might see kids skipping meals or exercising excessively. So when those disordered eating behaviors become persistent and there becomes this preoccupation with food and body image to the point where it's impairing one's own life and health, that's what we consider it evolving into an eating disorder.
1: And let's talk about the demographic that really are most at risk for eating disorders.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing when you were learning about this way back in the day, they probably had like a specific dem- demographic they taught you about. It was what teenage was
1: girls. They were the only ones who could have eat, basically who could have <laughs> eating disorders.
0: Yeah. And they also used to say that it was like usually Caucasian, white, mm-hmm. higher income, like affluent, high achieving females, like the type A female. And now we know that that is just not true, um, that eating disorders can occur at all ages. However, definitely adolescence and young adulthood is the most common time. Eating disorders can occur in all races. However, people of color are half as likely to be diagnosed with an eating disorder and receive treatment. And I think that has to do with an access and equity issue probably. Eating disorders will occur in both men and women, although females are two times more likely to experience an eating disorder. Um, One study also reported that nearly 16% of transgender students identified as having an eating disorder. Um, So really, this can occur in anyone, and that's why it's so important to be aware and screen appropriately.
1: So the most commonly diagnosed eating disorders are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. So there's something we use to characterize all these diagnoses. It's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, so the DSM-5, the fifth edition, um, also includes avoidant restrictive food intake disorders, also known as A-R-F-I-D. ARFID. ARFID, right. And in this condition, food avoidance is not influenced by body image, but rather by an aspect of the food itself. So, for example, it's texture or color. And a potential consequence of eating, like choking, that might be another reason to avoid certain foods or just lack of interest in certain foods. So we're going to focus our discussion on anorexia and bulimia today, since they are the most common. Um, for individuals who may not fit perfectly into an individual category, they're classified under other specified feeding um, and eating disorders.
0: Yeah, our fit is is commonly, not commonly seen, but like Um, Children with autism, you might think of um, because of like the texture sensitivities. But also, yeah, if there's a big anxiety like I don't eat because I'm afraid I'm going to choke, that would be. um, So it's a bit different. Um, But let's start by reviewing anorexia nervosa. So anorexia is defined as severe caloric restriction due to fear of gaining weight and disordered body image accompanied by a significantly low weight or a significant reduction in weight that has occurred over three months or more.
1: This is further divided into restricting type, where the weight loss was accomplished through dieting, fasting, or excessive exercise. And then there's the binge eating and purging type, which includes the use of laxatives or vomiting to induce weight loss.
0: There's also atypical anorexia nervosa, which is the same criteria that Dr. Jean talked about, but with normal to high weight. And these ones are really tough and maybe overlooked by healthcare providers um, or even inappropriately praised for their weight loss because they had started higher. But they can still experience all the same medical complications that we're going to talk about. And so they really need to, to be treated appropriately.
1: In the previous diagnostic criteria, loss of menstrual cycle was required for the diagnosis. But this was removed recently because it's widely known that this disorder can affect both men and women.
0: Right. Um, but it is important to know that that can be one of the, the side effects or things that we see in young women is loss of the menstrual cycle. Do you know the prevalence of anorexia in men and women?
1: So one recent systemic review of multiple studies looking into this found that the lifetime prevalence for anorexia was 1.4% for women and 0.2% for men.
0: Yeah. And anorexia is really, really serious and can lead to many medical complications if not addressed quickly.
1: One study found that individuals with anorexia nervosa are five times more likely to die prematurely and 18 times more likely to die from suicide than someone without the diagnosis. And this is why it's so important to identify and provide psychosocial therapy.
0: Because the medical complications and treatments are similar for anorexia and bulimia, we're going to discuss that together.
1: That sounds good. So, can you tell us how bulimia is diagnosed?
0: So, the DSM or Diagnostic Statistical Manual um, defines bulimia as recurrent binge eating. So, what binge eating is, is eating larger than normal amounts of food um, that an individual feels like they have no control over, followed by a recurrent compensatory behavior. So, that most commonly is vomiting, but some people will do like excessive exercise, laxative abuse, or like extreme dietary restriction after that, that binge eating. Those episodes are going to average at least one time a week for at least three months. And um, just like as was in anorexia, there has to be a component of this being influenced by body image concern as the primary motivation.
1: So unlike in anorexia, individuals with bulimia tend to be a normal weight. But we want to stress that weight itself is not a good indicator of the presence or absence of an eating disorder because as many as two-thirds of individuals with eating disorders have a normal weight and one-third qualifying as obese at the onset of disease.
0: This is something that requires kind of like reframing your normal like thought of what an eating disorder is. One review showed that the lifetime prevalence of bulimia was estimated at 1.9% for women and 0.6% for men. And a large report out of Harvard found that the lifetime prevalence of all eating disorders, so this includes binge eating disorder and then the other, um, un- other specified feeding and eating disorder, was around 9%. So it's quite high.
1: So although bulimia has a lower mortality overall than anorexia, individuals with this disorder are still twice as likely to die prematurely as the general population. And sadly, an average of over 10,000 people die yearly as a direct result of their eating disorder in the U.S.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're really frightening statistics. So once we've identified an eating disorder, such as anorexia or bulimia, It's really important to screen for the possible severe complications of the disorder.
1: So that usually starts with getting some blood work. We're looking at electrolytes, kidney function, liver function.
0: Yep. We will also check thyroid labs. So many times when the body's in starvation mode, you can see something called sick euthyroid, which is a disturbance in the thyroid hormone. Um, And this is something that will start to normalize after nutrition is restored. Um, In females who have lost their menstrual cycle, we will screen with hormonal labs and possibly check on their bone density as well.
1: Checking the heart rate and orthostatic blood pressure, and orthostatic blood pressure is blood pressure while laying, while sitting, and standing, these are all important also. Low heart rate, also known as bradycardia, is one of the common severe complications of eating disorders starvation can actually lead to reduced volume of the ventricles, the chambers of the heart. And if the heart rate is low, below 50, 50 beats per minute, or the labs are abnormal, then an EKG may also be obtained to assess the rhythm of the heart, because arrhythmias, abnormal rhythms of the heart, are also commonly seen as a complication of eating disorders.
0: Besides the complications we can see with the heart, there are complications really with nearly every other organ system. So you can have gastrointestinal symptoms like constipation. For people who are vomiting, we can see like small tears in the esophagus um, causing really like blood in the vomit. You can have tooth decay because of how much acid is, is present in your mouth. Some studies have actually even shown decreased brain volume in people who have eating disorders. And we definitely, definitely see cognitive issues and difficulties like poor concentration, executive functioning. There is a very high instance, like you talked about, the risk of suicide of co-occurring mental health disorders like depression or anxiety and OCD as well.
1: Once an eating disorder has been identified, then the provider and family must determine what the best next steps are for treatment for that individual.
0: So there are certain criteria if the eating disorder is severe enough that may require admission to a hospital or residential treatment program to really closely monitor the person as they are regaining weight and reestablishing their nutrition. So typically, um, and these are definitely things that I reference when I'm working up a child who has an eating disorder because I have to think to myself, is this kid stable enough for me to kind of help guide this family or is this something that I need a little extra help with? So. Really low heart rate, so um, typically less than 50 beats per minute. Really low blood pressure. Temperature instability, so a temperature less than 96 degrees Fahrenheit. Arrhythmias on EKG. Significant changes in the blood pressure when a child is going from laying down or seated to standing. Any fainting. Changes in their electrolytes, so, so their potassium or their sodium. Or if they have any of those tears I talked about. Also, if the weight is less than 75% of the expected body weight or like they just continue to lose weight despite you aggressively trying to help from a, you know, clinical standpoint or the family really trying to help. So um, those are are, are just some of our admission criteria that we might think about hospitalizing a, a person for a short period of time.
1: Most people with eating disorders will not require hospital admission and will be able to be begin treatment at home with the support of a multidisciplinary care team not not just your pediatrician.
0: Yeah. So there are a variety of options to choose from depending on that person and family's unique situation. And that can be intensive outpatient programs so you're not admitted to the hospital but you may go to a, a place and spend, you know, Monday through Friday at f- the facility that has Um, dietitians and meal planning and therapy. There are uh, some good virtual care programs, actually. Um, This is one thing that's come on online, no pun intended, over the last year or so. One is a program called Equip, you know, no affiliation, but I do refer patients there and they have like an online virtual team um, of therapists and dietitians and medical providers that can all work with the family. And then sometimes they may kind of pull this team together on their own between their general pediatrician, a dietician, and a therapist and and kind of work to handle it on their own. Whatever treatment program is decided upon, it should always include a multidisciplinary team with the family at the center of that team.
1: The therapy that has the best evidence for treating anorexia nervosa in children and teens is something called FBT, or Family-Based Treatment. It's a three-phased approach. Phase one works on weight restoration, and in this phase, parents take control of the diet and the meal preparation. In phase two, the adolescent resumes responsibility of eating, and then phase three involves more individual therapy and shifts to the adolescent's psychosocial needs.
0: One problem is that it can be difficult to find someone who is really experienced in family-based treatment. Of course, like insurance covering these things and all of that is always an issue, um, especially if people live in more like rural areas. It can also be useful in people with bulimia, but has less evidence that it is effective. And other therapy modalities that are are effective for both of these conditions would be cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavior therapy. Um, and those have been useful as well.
1: While there may be a role for medications at times, this is generally not first-line therapy. And many times with restoration of nutrition, um, the co-occurring mental health issues such as depression, anxiety, OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, these may improve on their own.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how often the mental health gets better with the nutrition. And I I mean, it makes sense, right? You need to feed your brain for it to work Mm -hmm. optimally.
1: Well, and part of the therapy is mental health based, right?
0: Totally. Yes. And, and, you know, pills don't teach skills. So (laughs) usually the therapy is the most important piece of things. It's estimated that somewhere between... 30 to 60% around there of people with eating disorders will recover by five years out from the diagnosis. It's definitely higher in people who have completed a family-based treatment program. Um, And so some of you might be thinking, what can we as providers, as friends, as family members do to aid in recovery and maybe even reduce the risk or likelihood of an eating disorder developing in the first place?
1: So first, you know, our society puts so much emphasis on being thin than saying that being thin means that you're healthy. And millions of dollars are pumped into fad diets and weight loss supplements. You see advertising for this all the time. Social media is always portraying unrealistic images of the perfect physique, so so to speak. So I would guess this has all just been exacerbated by all these issues.
0: Totally. I mean... There are even like thin influencers on social media that pander to young people who are already dealing with body image issues, and this can set them on a dangerous trajectory. So some tips for parents would be to talk openly about the dangers of these things in social media with your teen and really try to avoid social media for as long as possible if you can. You want to teach body positivity in your home and place an emphasis on intuitive, well-balanced eating. And not dieting. Um, one approach that I really like is is called Health at Every Size, which works to promote healthy bodies no matter what the size. I will link the website. I think it's important, and one thing that I try to, to talk about with teens as I'm educating them about nutrition and weight, or showing them their their you know BMI or weight curves or whatever it is, is like say I'm not focused on this number. I'm focused on on your habits. So it's not about a number, it's about healthy habits, right? It's about getting outside and moving your body, it's about you know, limiting processed foods and sugars and eating healthy. And if you're doing all of that stuff and and you know, your your BMI is a little higher then that's okay. You can really be healthy at every size.
1: And once your loved one is in recovery, then work to support them. Ask them what their food triggers are and work to avoid them. So as a medical provider, if the teen does not want to see their weight in the office, because some teens don't, that could be triggering. Make sure that their wishes are honored. And really, this this is a lifelong process, but recovery is possible.
0: Absolutely. So that wraps up today's episode on eating disorders. If you or someone you love may be suffering from an eating disorder, please reach out to your healthcare provider. You can also reach out to the helpline through the National Eating Disorders Association website. The number is 1-800-931-2237, and you can either call or text to
1: connect. In summary, today we discussed the diagnostic criteria for anorexia and bulimia. Anorexia requires severe caloric restriction, while bulimia involves binge eating followed by purging behaviors.
0: Both disorders are due to a preoccupation with body weight and body image and occur for at least three months. It's important to remember that weight itself is not always a reliable indicator of someone who may be suffering from an eating disorder.
1: These conditions are extremely serious and can lead to profound medical complications, so they really should be addressed with your medical provider as soon as possible.
0: And really good treatments are available through working with a multidisciplinary team that will include your physician, a therapist, a dietitian, and your family at the center.
1: For more information, please see resources um, on our website. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered.
0: You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu.
1: Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered.
0: And Instagram at Kids Considered.
1: If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you.
0: Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388.
1: Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com.
0: Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts.
1: Thank you for listening and we hope you will join us for our next podcast.
0: Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital.